Well, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing our study in Jesus' first sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, uh, things don't get any easier. We talked about adultery and divorce last week. Now we're going to talk about loving your enemies. Yay! Uh, Some difficult things to wrestle with, but I hope we can wrestle with them and uh, come out better because of it. Let's pray as we get started. Father, we look at these passages and are challenged. We wrestle within ourselves, Lord, to understand what you are saying and Father, there's turmoil in how this is applicable in our lives and in our world today. And it is contrary to so many things that we're confronted with. And Lord, we have to look and see the perspective that you're speaking these things from. And we need to also look at how we measure up to these things. Father, is perhaps our view Slanted is perhaps the way we look at things skewed. And Lord, help us to see your point of view as well as ours. And Lord, may we bridge that gap by yielding ourselves to you. Thank you again for challenging us always, Lord, to be better, to be more, and not allowing us to settle into a life that is less than what you desire. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Remember the purpose of Jesus' words is to push us to blessing. He's trying to get us to a place of understanding, of recognition of God's desire for our lives. He starts off with the whole blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is the foundation that he starts this sermon on. And he continues on in verse 33, and he says, Again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. That's for sure. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Okay. Jesus starts off by saying you have heard it was said, and he goes back to Leviticus. Actually, it's also in Numbers and Deuteronomy, but in Leviticus nineteen twelve, it says, do not swear falsely by the name of, by my name, and so profane 
the name of your God. I am the Lord. And so what he's talking about is, you have heard it said, here's some things that were, were talked about in, again, these scriptures, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But I tell you, we, we've talked about how Jesus is now setting himself as a standard that is above and clearer than that of the scriptures that they had come to know. He is declaring, again, the fulfillment of these things. Let me ask you guys, and you guys got to participate here tonight a little bit, okay, so everyone stays awake, because I know it's cold outside, it's a little warm in here, you've had some coffee, maybe a cookie or two, um, if the sugar doesn't kick in, I, I, I've got to help keep you engaged here. What do you think Jesus' point is here? What point is he trying to make about oaths, not swearing by these things? Any ideas? What do you think he's saying? Yeah, Timothy. Um, be a man of your word. Be a person of your word. Don't give your allegiance to anybody but God. Don't give allegiance to anyone but God? Okay. You know, the very practice of oaths is kind of a, a sad reflection on human character. Isn't it? When you say, oh, I swear. So basically you're saying if you don't swear to to God or swear by God's throne or swear by the temple or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, you know, or swear on my mom's grave, you know, well, if your mom's alive still, whatever. The idea is, oh, my word isn't enough, so I've got to give you something of importance to give validation that my words are true. And so in that scripture in Leviticus, don't swear falsely by my name and profane the name of your God, Jesus is saying, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be a yes and let your no be a no. In other words, just tell the truth. The very idea that you have to give something that is of more value to give weight to your words is a declaration that your words aren't much. The subject of the oath is not more important than the truth itself. As heaven and earth will pass away, so the oath will pass away. But the truth needs to remain. doesn't matter if you swear on this or swear on that. If you're not telling the truth, sometime your words become empty. How much importance do we put on telling the truth? Or how many times do we justify because we want to get away with something? We want to lie because we'll get in trouble with the boss. We want to skew things because it makes us look better, because the wife will get mad, the husband will be upset, you know, the, the parents will uh, have a fit. I was going to say hissy fit, but I'm a parent. I don't want to say that. Uh, <laughs> and so what we do is we lie to cover ourselves and to make our lives easier. And then when we get caught in the lie and we have to own up and say, yeah, what I said wasn't true. I'm sorry. I apologize. I was lying. And then the next time comes, well, why should I believe you? Oh, honest, I swear. In other words, my my word isn't enough, so I've got to attach something else to my words to give them validation. But you see, it's already 
been tainted. It's already been skewed. And so what's happening now is you're trying to, to bring more worth to what you say and you try and attach it to something else. And I have found that we do this in so many ways in trying to give credence to the things that we say. A lot of times we'll, we'll do this in trying to develop, well, I need someone to be accountable with, you know, I need an accountability partner. It's like, really? Yeah, I need an accountability partner. So you can lie to your wife, but you're not going to lie to your accountability partner? You see, if you can lie to your wife, you can lie to whoever this guy is that supposedly is your accountability partner. We even lie to ourselves. And Jesus is saying, you have to let your yes be yes. And your no is a no. It doesn't matter what you swear by. In fact, don't swear by anything. You have no power on these things that you're calling in to bear witness of you. You have no control over the throne of heaven or even your head, whether your hair can be white or not. Instead, just tell the truth. Be a person who's honest. Jesus said 78 times, I tell you the truth in the Gospels. I tell you the truth. To be able to have confidence in our words is really an important thing. And once that gets tainted, it's a difficult thing to build back up. Have you guys found out how to be true? I have. I, I, I've come to this and said, yeah, he was right. It's better to just tell the truth than to be caught and tell the lie. And we are challenged again by Jesus to be people of a moral standard that doesn't falter. How does that make you feel? A little uneasy? Kind of like, okay. Because he says, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now that's the kicker. Because anything that is tainted apart from the truth is coming from the evil one. And the idea of the evil one, it could also be just coming from evil. In other words, it's just an evil intent. And to think that our lives, we twist and turn things for our benefit, and it's really just evil. It's convicting. It's challenging. And it is so easy to justify. It is so easy to do. Well, it's better to, to say this than to own up to this or, you know, you know, I don't want to have to deal with the consequences. It's just easier to deal with this. And again, we're, we're dealing in a relational aspect here. You know, we're not talking about, you know, government, you know, war times. Do you lie to the enemy kind of things? We're talking about relational things here. That's a, another topic that we're kind of going to touch on. And so he gives this idea of you just need to be people of honesty, people who tell the truth. That needs to be your character. Anything else, it's just evil. 
He goes on and he says, You have heard it was said, verse 38, Eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. He just gets tougher and tougher with some of the things that he say. He goes back and he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this is found in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And what this is doing is not encouraging people to strike back, but trying to restrict the retribution. In other words, it's supposed to keep you from overdoing it. If someone takes an eye, you don't cut off their head. You are exacting in the retribution. It's it's supposed to be equal to whatever that was. But Jesus is going past that, and he's say, saying that vengeance is not of value in this kingdom of heaven. Vengeance is not the goal. And he gives five examples, kind of four. Two of them are kind of combined at the end of, of what he means by that. And he starts off, and he says in verse 39... He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Now, this was very contextual at the time. The idea of someone slapping you is a insult. It's a sign of disrespect. It's not someone's coming up and hauling and punching you. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about someone is insulting you, they're disrespecting you, they're slapping you on the cheek. I, I would equate it much like someone spitting in your face. You know, just they spit and you're just like, that's an insult. It's like, this is what I think of you. And they spit in your face. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to nail them? You're going to punch them? You're going to run away? And Jesus is saying that we need to show dignity. Now, the idea of disrespect and showing this insult, we have in our minds maybe, oh yeah, that's coming from someone who we're not close to or someone who we don't really care for. But sometimes it feels like we've been spitting our face Maybe by our spouse and something they've said. Or by our kids and what they've done. Or by a friend and how they've treated us. Or maybe it's a co-worker or, or a boss. And someone has done something and it has been as if they've insulted us, spit in our face. What is our tendency when that happens when someone does disrespect insult us and it's someone we know our, our tendency is to respond in the same way how many times when someone insults you do you respond well what about you you know well why did you do this well like you never do it And the idea here is we're, we're trying to get out of this. 
We're, we're trying to scoot our way. We're, we're trying to justify ourselves. If you did this to me, well, it's because that's why I did it to you. But you see, the idea of insulting, slapping your face, it, it in that time, in that culture, yeah, it was literal, a slap in the face, and that's how they showed the disrespect. But we show it with our words so many times. We show it in our actions so many times. And it's the same attitude. And you see, your honor and dignity is not found in another person's actions or words, but it's found in your own. And so when someone mistreats you, when someone does not show you respect, how you respond shows if you are respectful or not. Not whether they say so. It's not their actions, but yours. And Jesus is giving us the invitation to take the higher road. When that person insults you, to not allow their words to be what defines you, but to allow your actions to be what defines you. Think of what that would look like in your relationships. In your marriages. In your family situation. Think of how that translates. Where you take the higher road and you don't respond to the insult. But you choose to take a road that is not going to demean yourself or cater to their words and their actions. And so Jesus is telling you, don't be identified by what they say, be identified by what you do. He goes on, he gives another example in verse 40. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Now, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there was a, a saying, if you took someone's coat, if you borrowed that or took their coat, you had to give it back by nightfall. Because in a time where, again, there is a lot of poverty, the coat was basically your important piece of clothing. And it was your blanket at night. It is what you use to sleep with. It is what you use to keep warm, to keep from just freezing to death. And so Jesus is saying if someone asks you for something, it sues you for something that's small, don't be willing to part with, don't be unwilling to part with something that is important. And what I believe he's telling us here is again, to not allow your possessions to be the things that bring you peace, to bring you contentment. You don't find yourself fulfilled by the things that you possess. In fact, you're willing to part with things of importance so that you can make peace. When peace is banished over our worldly possessions, it is plain that they're more loved than the people. In other words, if we're willing to, to go to war for things, it means things are more important than people. And what I believe Jesus is saying here is be willing to notice the difference between the things you possess, like your shirt, like your coat, like your material possessions, be willing to see the importance of those things compared to the importance of your neighbor. 
and the people. How many people, Christians, fight over things? Gil posted something a while back. There was a lady suing for some poem that she wrote. She's suing all kinds of churches because she wrote a poem and they didn't give her the, uh, you know, rights to that. They didn't write her name or give her the, the money for, I'm losing the terminology. What is Royalties. She didn't get her royalties, so she's suing churches for millions of dollars. And here's this poem about the love of Jesus. And she's going on to sue. Now, yeah, she's due royalties, but really? You're going to sue the church because they're not giving you money for your poem about Jesus? What's the priority there? Well, my poem and my money is worth more than my brother. And so when someone is going to make a lot of a little, don't be willing or unwilling to give them a lot in terms of possessions, in terms of the physical things. Don't be unwilling. And again, Jesus is telling us to take the higher road. Now, we're going to go into some more difficult things than that, but I, I want you to see that Jesus is purposefully pushing your buttons right now. It's not an accident. He didn't just say this, oh, I didn't know what he was thinking. Well, Jesus, what about this? What about that? He is purposefully pushing our buttons, just like he did with the idea of being angry, just like what he did when a man looks at a woman and lusts after her. He's committing adultery in his heart. He's purposefully pushing us to go somewhere, and he's doing it for a reason. He's wanting us to to understand what's taking place within you when someone says, well, if they sue you for your shirt, give them your coat also. What's going on inside of you? You're, you're steaming. You're, you're burning up inside. If this is really happening, you're getting aggravated, I would think. I do, and I bet you are too. But right now we're in church kind of a thing. Oh, yes. Yes, holy Jesus, yeah, we, 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 we understand. But the truth is, when these things start happening to us, what starts happening to you? Where do you place the importance? And that's why he's doing these things. He goes on in verse 41, he gives another example. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Now, the Roman law said that a Roman soldier could have any civilian carry his equipment for one mile. Okay, that was the law. And so imagine, you're heading home. You've had a long day out in the field doing whatever it is, and your wife, you know, well, they didn't text you back then, but, you know, you, you, you got a message that your favorite meal is on the stove, and you're hungry, and you're heading home. In fact, you're just, you know, a couple of blocks from home, and you're looking, oh, man, I can hardly wait. I'm starving. Some Roman soldier, your oppressor, says, hey, you, carry my armor, and it's the opposite way. What are you thinking? Don't say it out loud, but... <laughs> What's taking place in your heart? You're infuriated. You're upset. 
because now this person has just stolen your freedom. And Jesus wants you to gain your freedom back. He's forcing you to go a mile, but you are free to go too. There was a, a Sudanese group that was part of a village in a time when the Sudan was rationing out food and the people were allowed basically two cups of rice and one, one cup of lentils per person and that was to last them for two weeks. That's all the food that they were rationed. And so what they did in this one village is all the families got together, put all their food together, and they had a feast for a couple of days. And then they did nothing but drink tea the rest of that time. And their idea is, you may be able to ration our food, but you can't tell us how we will eat it. You may mandate how much we can eat, but you can't tell us we can't have a feast and we can't have a party. And what they were doing is claiming their freedom to eat how they wanted, even though they were being controlled with how much they can eat. And it's a similar idea here that's taking place, a similar sentiment. You can tell me what to do, but I have the freedom to do more. I have the freedom of how I am going to do these things. You say, hey, you, pick up this, carry my armor one mile. Hey, I'll go with you two miles. What? Yeah, you see, I still have the freedom to be generous. You can't take that away from me. Now, that's so foreign to us. That way of thinking isn't natural. The way of thinking is, man, I can hardly wait to overthrow these Roman pigs. Man, they are swine. They are just, I can't believe one day the Messiah is going to come and he's going to wipe them out. They are going to regret making me walk an extra mile when my home is just one block away. And Jesus is saying, no, change it. Change your attitude and go with them two miles. And again, He's pushing buttons here. He's purposely changing how things are taking place. And, and what happens when someone shows extra kindness? What happens? It's disarming. Have you ever been in line and maybe there's a teller helping you and they've had a bad day or they're having a bad day and you're getting the brunt of their attitude? And instead of catering to it, you start, hey, how are you doing? You know, you start being genuine and nice. I remember in the seventh grade, there was this bully named Howard. Howard was a big guy for a seventh grader. And Howard used to pick on everyone. And everyone hated Howard. Everyone. No one liked Howard. Howard had no friends because he picked on everybody. And I remember one day, Howard pushed me down or something, did something, and it was, you know, again, embarrassing, and, okay, what can I do? Howard can beat me to a pulp, so I can't fight Howard. All I can do is use my words, you know, to try and get back at him. And I remember just standing up, and I just said, Howard, do you know the reason no one likes you is because you're a bully? 
And I remember it was like this light bulb went off in Howard's head. He's like, that's why I have no friends? Like no one ever told Howard this. And I was the only one who shared with Howard, you know, Howard, the reason you don't have any... Now, I didn't do it for a good reason. I just all I could do. So I didn't get beat, but I had to do something. Howard, you have no friends because you're a bully. And I'm not kidding you. After that day, Howard was my friend. And he stopped being a bully to other people. And all I did was say something that was truthful to him. And it changed his way of thinking. And you guys have done that at the store with someone who's acting rude to you and you're kind to them. And it changes their disposition. Now, it doesn't always. You don't always get the, oh, yay, this is the magic trick. You know, you do this and everyone's going to be good to you. It doesn't work that way. But you see, you don't have to let that person determine your freedom and how you will deal with these things. And you can still be kind when someone is being oppressive. Their oppression doesn't control your freedom to be generous. And so here he gives them, again, another option. He gives kind of four and five are are kind of together in verse 42 where he says, Give to the one who asked you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And in both these situations, he's saying, show generosity in your heart towards people. Don't be looking for how you can get out of things, but look for how you can help the person out. It doesn't mean if anyone comes up to you, hey, you got 20 bucks. Oh, man, here, you got 20 bucks. Yeah, I can't turn you away. But when you see someone in need, do you, oh, man, there's someone in need. I'm going to take another route so I can avoid them. Are you no, thinking, what can I do to keep from giving? Or is your attitude, what can I do to help? The idea is to have an attitude and a heart of generosity. Because that's the attitude of the kingdom. You might not be able to give any money. But maybe you can give some food. You might not be able to help them out in the ways that they're even asking. But is your heart postured to do what you can do? Are you being generous? Are you trying to be generous? Or are you trying to hold on to it? Well, if I give them, then I won't have enough. You know, giving to the one who asks you, don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It, it could be family. It could be friends. And again, maybe you can't give them money and maybe you shouldn't give them money. But what can you give them? Are you postured to try and help and try and care for them? There is a spirit that underscores not only these things, but all of these issues. Just like calling someone an idiot... Or looking at a woman and lust reveals the heart, so does our response to those who would insult or use us. It reveals what's going on inside of us. And what Jesus is doing here is trying to, to get us to see what's really inside of us when it comes to these issues. 
He goes even further. If he hasn't pushed us far enough in verse 43, he's sure to push you over the edge. He says in verse 43, You have heard it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the scriptures never tell you to hate your enemy. This was induced by them. It did tell you to love your neighbor. And there was definitely things that they did towards their enemies as far as judgment and war times. But they were never told, hate your enemy. And so when he says to love your neighbor and now love your enemy, we need to try and decipher a few things. First thing we need to ask is, who are our enemies? Now, automatically, you kind of think of countries, those who maybe you're at war against. They would definitely think of the Romans who are oppressing them. You might think, oh, terrorists, those kinds of people, murderers. But, you see, your enemy can also be your coworkers. Your enemies can be the people who are in your own family. Your enemies can be people who you have to associate with on a regular basis. It's not always someone who's holding a gun against you. It could be someone you have to live alongside, just like they had to do with the Roman people. And so the idea of who your enemies are, it's a lot more vast than maybe we might think at first sight of reading this. They were enemies with a lot of people. In fact, he mentions publicans, tax collectors, pagans, which were probably people that they would think of as their enemies. And so, who are your enemies? Well, it might be people that you're not getting along with, people who oppose your way of thinking. Democrats, Republicans, people who are on the other side of the aisle, who are opposing your political views. You look at them as an enemy. And Jesus is saying that, well, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I'm telling you, love your enemies. And notice that they said, hate your enemy, singular. He says, love your enemies, plural. Well, what does it mean to love? Love does not mean to accept the wrong that they've done or not to oppose a position. But it means that you desire the ultimate good for them. We talked about this when we were talking about anger some. C.S. Lewis examines Jesus' words, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And he says, I don't always like who I am. Do you? Does everyone here, oh, man, I love myself. No one except for maybe Mitchell. <laughs> we all have places in our lives where we say, I don't really like this about me. I, I don't care for this quality in my life. I'm a little impatient. I'm a little narrow-minded. I'm a little harsh. 
Now, what do you do when you don't like that quality about yourself? What do you desire? You desire to change. You desire to be better than. Loving your enemies doesn't mean I have to accept what you do. I like the fact that you are rude. I like the fact that you are abusive. I like the fact that you are unjust. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is, I don't like that you are this way, but I desire for you not to remain that way. That's what you do with yourself and those qualities that you dislike. I don't want to stay harsh. I don't want to be a person who is unforgiving. I don't like it when I am quick in my temper and I lose my patience. I don't like those things. I want to be better. That's what you desire for your enemies. I desire them to be better. I always desire what would be best for me. That's what I need to desire for those who are my enemies. Again, it doesn't mean there's not justice. Jesus isn't saying basically everyone gets a free ride. Someone commits murder, they need to go to jail, maybe be put to death themselves. I'm not opposed to that. But I sure hope that they change. I desire for them to change and be better. Well, how do you do this? Well, in verse 44, he gives us one little example. He says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. Man, that's a hard thing to do is pray for someone who's against you. It's a real difficult thing. Because what I want to pray is, Lord, break their teeth in their mouth. Like the psalmist. Yeah, that's a righteous prayer. But I'm not desiring what's better for them. I just want vengeance. But praying blessing on someone changes how you see that person. Now, whoever it is that you have something against... It could be a person in your family. It could be a person at work. It could be a person in politics. It can be a literal enemy from another country. Whoever it is, just for a moment, try and put yourself in their position and ask yourself, why are they doing what they're doing? Because it might be wrong, but the odds are the reason they're doing it is because they believe it is right. In other words, they're skewed in their thinking. Take Nazi Germany. How many of those people were walking along with the Nazis thinking we're doing the right thing? We have to do this. We're protecting our country. So what they were doing was horrific. Did they think, well, I'm doing something horrific? No, they thought they were doing something patriotic. They were skewed in their thinking. They were twisted. It was sad. In fact, in Germany today, there is still this attitude of oppressive, just, uh, just remorse, of shame because of what they've done. 
the history of that country still is like a shadow that overshadows those people, many of them, because of the history that was there. But you see, if you stand in their shoes for a second, you can start saying, these people are wrong, but now I'm seeing why they are doing what they're doing. It's not right. But now I get a little bit of understanding where I see the humanity of the person and it's not just, yeah, that person's just wrong. That person is skewed. That person is twisted. That person is deceived. And it helps us to maybe see things. How do we do that? By praying for them. God, help this person. They are twisted. They are saying right is wrong and wrong is right and they don't know the bottom from the top. They are messed up. Having that understanding. Why are we even supposed to do this? Why do we even care to love our enemies? What good is that going to do? Verse 45 says that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. The reason we do this isn't because it's going to change things around the world. We do it because we are the children of our Father. Remember in verse 9, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. This is your DNA. This is part of who you are. The reason you do this is because you are children of your father, and this is his position. The motive is the relationship with our father. That's why we do it, because we are children of our father. Jesus said in Luke 6, 35-36, where he's talking about these same things, it says, because God, he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. He is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Now, think of who is ungrateful. That could be a whole lot of people. That could be my kids, right? My kids aren't grateful. They have no idea how much I have sacrificed for them my whole life. Wait till you have kids. One day you'll understand. How many parents have said that to their children? I hope God will give you a kid just like you. Then you'll see. God gave me twins. What did that mean? God is kind to the ungrateful and even the wicked. He's kind to them. He still brings the sun out. He still brings rain to care for the needs that they might have. Be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. Why are we supposed to do this? Because this is who God is. As I was going through this, I heard someone talk about a, a prayer that's read in Lent. It was a prayer book that is read in Lent. And as I was listening to this and kind of going over it, I was moved to tears. 
as I just kind of read this and read the end of it. And I kind of want to bring this into conclusion. I have it written here because I want you to follow along with me and read this. Because I think this is our sentiment many times. It says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Raise up my hated enemies. Exile him to a dry desert place where he starves, half dead, until all he can taste is dirt and dust. Take all my darkest, worst temptations and place them on his broken back. Let him suffer under their weight. Lead my enemy into cities of darkness. Let him feel all death and despair. Let his closest friends be disloyal, dishonest hypocrites who don't understand a word he says. Surround him with two-faced liars who never stop scheming against him. When he finally does something good, let his finest church, let the finest church-going people turn on him. When he invites the oil executive and the Wall Street mortgage broker to his home, let the sense of his new friends keep all respectable people at arm's length. Drop my enemy down, deep into the pit, into all history's filthy disease and hate, into the grip of fear and misunderstanding and every sordid motive. Let my enemy be suffocated by pain. Let him drown in suffering. Out of his anguish, let his sweat drip down mixed with blood and let his followers decide they'd rather sleep than come to his aid. And then strip him. Strip him of companions. Strip him of his voice. Strip him of clothes. Strip him even of his sense that you are near. And stripe him. Stripe his back, his arms and face. Stripe him again and again. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, above the world, past and future. Raise him up for all to see. Then make him a serpent. Make him all sin. Let the wicked discover the psalmist's pain and cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, and yet somehow still have mercy me. We want vengeance for our enemies, but oh how we want mercy for ourselves. We are so quick to slay the wicked, but not realize that many times we fall in that camp. There is always mercy for me. but there's always mercy for them. And what Jesus is getting here is to our heart and our self-righteous disposition that doesn't see our own condition. When we see the wicked, we don't see ourselves in with them. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. It's 
Starting at verse 36, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. You can follow along when you get there. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debtor of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said, said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but she, this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. You see, we can see the sin and the wickedness in others, but we don't realize our condition, that we ourselves are bankrupt, that we ourselves are in such need of God's mercy. And like Simon the Pharisee, we see the people who have obvious evil and we can name them and we know who they are and we could list all the things that they've done wrong. But until we realize the depth that we have been forgiven, we will never be able to accurately see what is taking place. We will be like Simon the Pharisee and we will look at the woman who is an obvious sinner and we'll say, oh man, that woman is bad. But then Jesus says, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. Do we realize how much we have been forgiven? Because until we do, these words of Jesus will seem alien and foreign to us. They will make no sense. Love my enemies. Are you kidding? And God could say, you were my enemy. You were against me. You live separated from me. And yet I have given my life for you. Are you now going to judge them when I have been so merciful to you? We are challenged by Jesus to love our enemies because while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He closes this passage 
And he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? In other words, you're no different. In fact, he goes on, he says, and if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans, even the people who don't have God, do that. The people who have no knowledge of God are doing exactly what you're doing. What's the difference with you who say you know God? You're doing just what everyone else does. You're going along with the routine of the world. You want to be different? Then show mercy. Show love. Be kind towards those who don't deserve it. In fact, he says, be perfect. And the word perfect is the idea of mature. Come to completion. Why? Because that's who your Heavenly Father is. Again, as C.S. Lewis said, God will help us to be holy, but he won't help us to be anything less. And what he's doing is challenging us to see ourselves clearly, and from where we see clearly, that's how we see everything. And it is all in the light of God's mercy. When I counsel people, and I'm talking to someone who you know, has done something obviously wrong, someone who is cheated on their wife, someone who has taken uh, and stolen from someone else, and I'm going to counsel them. Whenever I sit to counsel someone, I am always reminded, and I do this intentionally, and sometimes I think God just intentionally brings it up. It says, Sam, what is the most shameful thing in your life? Do you remember it? It's like, I don't want to remember that, God. I'm, I'm about to counsel someone right now. Well, if you're going to counsel someone, you better start from there because that most shameful thing in your life is where I've forgiven you. Remember that when you present yourself to this person because if it's not in that humble attitude, then it's not in the right attitude. God, you've been merciful for me. You have forgiven me. If you don't present that to them, you are not representing me. Remember when Moses struck the rock? And they struck it twice. These people, how many times do I have to hit that? And the Lord said, Moses, come here. That didn't represent me, right? You were angry, but I wasn't. Don't misrepresent God. Understand the mercy that we are in, and that mercy is where we start from if we deal with other people. Now, um, a great book on this kind of thing is C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce. Um, just a, an incredible picture of people who are so locked into their position that it, it, it takes them to their destiny, and their destiny is just because it is the direction they choose and desire to be, um, whether it be in hell or whether it be in heaven. Um, it's a powerful book. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we have again been uh, exposed in light of who you are, in light of the love you have, in the light of your mercy. God, you are always postured towards mercy. You are always postured towards forgiveness, towards grace. And God, you took Paul, who was killing your followers, made him the great apostle. Lord, you take us who were an enemy to your cross 
and have made us now your children. Um, God, you are doing that constantly. And we are so quick to try and stop that from happening to those who, to us, seem sinful, to us who seem uh, evil, those who we consider our enemies. And we are quick to go to that place, Lord, and slow to look at mercy. But you are quick to go to mercy and slow to wrath. Father, may we be more like you in these areas. And and may you show us what this means. I don't fully understand this. This still upsets me so many times. I still wrestle with how this translates into so many factions of our society and life. And yet, here it is. And here you are. And God, you don't apologize for being gracious. You don't apologize for being kind to the ungrateful or the wicked. Uh, You just are. And ask us to do the same if we want to be your children. And so show us what that means. Expose our hearts and our minds and how we think and how we think wrong and give us understanding and wisdom of how this does take place in our lives, Lord. And I ask that you would just continue to motivate us to be more like you, to be perfect even as you are perfect. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.